Okay, two quick things. One, please check out the NPR One app for a great new way to listen to podcasts and all things NPR. And two, if you're looking for some new podcasts, NPR's newest show is designed to give you just that. It's called The Big Listen. It introduces you to new podcasts and gives you the inside scoop on podcasts you already love. Find The Big Listen on NPR One or at npr.org slash podcast. All right, time for the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. We're back with another episode of Listener Mail. We're going to answer your questions about the issues, what we're seeing on the campaign trail, and anything else you're curious about. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. All right. We are here. It is Friday, which means we need to do our sometimes farcical, often deeply ironic disclaimer where we say it's Friday. We have no idea what sort of news is in store for us this weekend. Usually there's weekend news. So if that was the case, which it probably was, we'll get to that in the next podcast episode. You guys excited? I'm ready. Yeah. Maybe we should, like, guess what the weekend news will be. I can't even. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dangerous like, game. Yeah, that could be touchy. Right. dangerous game. All right, we'll stick to these questions. The first one is from Megan in Enfield, Connecticut. She writes, hey, y'all, love the podcast. Quick question about the third debate. Trump mentioned something about an audio clip between Hillary and Obama encouraging violence at his Chicago rally. What the heck is he talking about? Megan. It's a lot to unpack there, Megan. Yeah. Yep. Well, Scott, you wrote about this, right? I did write about this. Um, I think one thing that Trump often did in these debates was kind of say something or make a reference assuming everybody had read up on what he was talking about. And mm-hmm. I feel like that was one reason why they weren't that effective for him. So here's the deal. Uh, this was a sting from Project Veritas, mm-hmm. which is a conservative activist group that specializes in kind of these uh, undercover camera sting videos. Right. And uh, James O'Keefe is the uh, most prominent person within this. People may know him from the acorn sting uh, a few years back. As well as the Planned Parenthood videos that were also sting videos. Mm -hmm. And also a video about NPR, we should point out. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so this particular video was uh, released. There were a couple different videos released last week, and they're about Democratic operatives uh, on on camera, uh, bragging basically about organizing and training people and sending them to Trump events with the explicit goal of creating incidents, creating violence that would generate bad headlines for Donald Trump. So this uh, the guy who talked about this the most, an operative named Scott Fovel based in uh, Wisconsin. He has since been fired from the organization he was working for. Uh, which was Americans United for Change, which mm-hmm. is a Democratic operative outlet. It is not a, It is not directly affiliated with the Hillary Clinton campaign. That's right. But he and the other guy who, who ended up stepping away from his job, Robert Creamer, uh, he's another Democratic consultant. Both of them basically did consulting work, did contracting work for the DNC. But, but Scott Fovel was on camera talking about kind of orchestrating these things, trying to goad Trump supporters into throwing punches or getting violent. And it, he bragged saying that in the primary season, there was a big Trump event in Chicago that was canceled because basically large scale massive fights broke out in the street. Right. He said that they had a hand in doing that. Right. Well, there was also an accusation that they had been paying people to do this. And part of what uh, Mr. Trump was referencing is Robert Creamer, who is a Democratic consultant and the husband of a Democratic congresswoman, has been paid through the DNC because he's a Democratic consultant and has been subcontracted. And that payment was evidence that they pointed to to suggest that there was sort of a collusion going on to do disruption as at these events. 
there is no direct evidence that that is what occurred. Mm -hmm. But obviously, having these Democratic operatives speak like this on camera uh, reflected very poorly on them. And they have both stepped aside from their organization, saying that they don't want to be distractions in the campaign. And we should also say that uh, Project Veritas does have a track record of kind of selectively editing the video that, that goes into its clips. So... Uh, some of the Democrats caught on tape have said, that's not really what I said at all. It was taken out of context. Yeah. And they have not released the full uncut videos. All right. Next question is from Avedon from Los Angeles. Nice name. Avedon writes, do you think it's possible that the RNC might adopt superdelegates as part of its nomination process for future presidential elections if Donald Trump loses? Love the show. Keep up the great work. In short, no way. <laughs> I mean, Superdelegates like, were so hot this year. We should clarify in case anyone just happens to be listening to the podcast for the very first time. Superdelegates are part of the Democratic nominating process. They are... Uh, in some cases, unelected officials, including members of Congress, who play a role as delegates in deciding the Democratic nominee. They were very controversial in the 2016 fight between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders because of a lot of Hillary Clinton's advantage was built in by these superdelegates. They are essentially, in shorthand, the establishment. Right. The yeah. Man. I mean, it, it's also, you know, past presidents and it's people who are prominent in the Democratic Party, that sort of thing. Yep. And superdelegates have always been a target of Republicans. Republicans have repeatedly criticized the use of them as sort of, as a word we've heard a lot this year, a rigged system. Right. And Republicans will say they don't do superdelegates because they are more of a grassroots, ground up party. And any attempt to institute that kind of a system into the RNC, I think, would be pretty quickly rejected by the grassroots members. Though I love the idea of somebody sitting in an office somewhere being like, my big takeaway from 2016 is we meet, we need a more rigged system. Yeah, we, we need have. more superdelegates. <laughs> Although, I mean, to call superdelegates rigged, you could argue that's a little unfair. And Democrats would argue that yes. that is unfair. I, that, right. that parties are private clubs mm-hmm. and private institutions and that superdelegates exist to protect the integrity of the club. Well, thanks, Avedon, for that good question. Uh, moving along to Missouri. Jenny in St. Louis writes, I'm hearing a lot about Oppo. Mm. Can you tell me what this means in terms of political campaigns? Why is all this info coming out only now rather than during the primaries? <laughs> Several people share that question with yeah. you, Jenny. I uh, love the show, Jenny. Uh, a couple a- different things here. First of all, uh, the idea of Oppo, how campaigns use it on themselves, how other campaigns use it. What's going on here? Uh, Well, Oppo is opposition research. And it's a pretty standard operating procedure in campaigns. Both sides do it. And it's generally when you are running against a political opponent, you have some combination of researchers on staff that dig through their life and their voting record and where they take their contributions and you build a file against them. And it's not always illegal things or bad things. Sometimes it's just their voting record or the fact that they Mm -hmm. were a lobbyist or Mm -hmm. who they lobbied for. It's kind of like ammunition you would use in a campaign. And Jenny is right that a lot of people with this wave of women coming out against Donald Trump have been asking, where on earth were all of Donald Trump's primary opponents? Uh, And that's a great question. Back in February, Sam Stein from the Huffington Post did report that Republican campaign sources, operatives, etc., were saying that, you know, campaigns have been dropping the ball on doing opposition research, in part because they just didn't take Donald Trump seriously enough early enough. Mm-hmm. And that was that, a huge criticism of the Republican primary process, that mm-hmm. Republicans never thought Donald Trump had a chance to win the nomination. So everybody kind of stood on the sidelines and waited for everybody else to kind of take him out. And, and nobody they, could. And mm-hmm. they wanted to draft behind him so that they could get right. his supporters, assuming he would drop out at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, before they went all nuclear on each other, Ted Cruz was pretty buddy-buddy with Donald Trump because he was hoping to kind of 
take that co-opt and, and yeah. get those voters. Mm-hmm. And by the time they realized that he was on track for the nomination, it may have been a little late. I mean, the point of oppo is often to be done early and fast and furious to define your opponent before they have a chance to win. Right. And also your campaign, you know, will do it on you. And we are learning lately that the Donald Trump campaign didn't do that on him. <laughs> mm. And they, that's that, a very good point that, yeah, that, that candidates often hire researchers to go investigate themselves to yeah. know what they will be used against them. Right. Yeah. And one example, another example of oppo in the debates is Alicia Machado. That was simple Clinton campaign opposition research into Donald Trump, and they used it selectively and targeted. Right. And these are two candidates that probably have much more opposition research available about them than, <laughs> than the typical campaign since they both lived their life in the public eye for decades. And Donald Trump spent a lot of that time apparently calling into the Howard Stern show. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways you could argue that the WikiLeaks emails are a form of oppo, although Clearly, it's not coming from a political opponent as much as it is from hacks from Russian cyber attacks. All right. We're going to go to the next question. But on that point, I feel like we should do a PSA that uh, as more information has come forward about how John Podesta's email got hacked, don't click on phishing things. If it says, hey, you need to change your password. Don't don't do do it. it. (laughs) Two-step verification. All right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next question is from Rebecca in New York City, and she recorded it. Hey, y'all. This is Rebecca. I'm from Texas, but I live now in New York City. And I was calling because I went to look at my polling place online, and I saw they had an option to look at the ballot. Well, when I pulled that up, I was looking at the presidential tickets right at the top, and they had the candidates listed several times. Uh, Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine are at the top, listed as Democratic nominees, and then further down, they're listed with words like women's equality and working families underneath their names. Um, At the same time, Donald Trump and Mike Pence are listed as Republicans and also the conservative nominees. What's up with that? Are these political parties in New York that somehow gave their endorsement to these candidates that aren't really part of their party? Thank you so much for all the work you do, keeping me sane during this crazy election. Keep up the good work. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So yeah, Rebecca asks, is this, are these political parties that gave their endorsements to other candidates? And yeah, that's what it is. The, the great term for this is electoral fusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens is New York and a handful of other states will allow third parties, minor parties, to cross-endorse, to endorse the major party candidate if they like. Part of the point is to allow voters to sort of register their displeasure with the Democratic or the Republican Party, but still not feel like they're throwing their vote away. You can vote for Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine, but you can vote under the Working Families Party and then feel like you're not supporting the Democratic establishment. New York's one of the more interesting states here where you have the Democratic Party and the Working Families Party kind of trails behind it. And you have the same relationship with Republicans and conservatives. But if you vote for Clinton on the Working Party's line, you're still voting for Hillary Clinton. All right. Uh, last week, we had that really uplifting video from Canada. We oh, are, yeah. We are returning to Canada for our next question. Um, Jeff from Winnipeg, Canada writes, hey, y'all, love the podcast. American politics are so much more exciting than Canadian, but it's less stressful living where politics are not exciting. I feel that. As a Canadian, in a four-year cycle, I vote for, one, my member of parliament, two, my member of the legislature assembly, three, my mayor, four, my city councillor, and five, three school trustees from a list of candidates who I've never heard of. (laughs) Five decisions and only three to five occur at the same time. How many decisions does the average U.S. voter have to make on Election Day? How long does it take being in the booth? Jeff. Uh, Our friends in the North also have much shorter election cycles. So we have something to envy on that front, too. Um, Well, the short answer is there is no easy answer to that question because 
you know, we have federal elections, then we have state elections, then we have local elections, and they all happen on a rotating basis. So it depends on uh, each state how many votes you're going to have to cast on that ballot. For instance, you know, we have 100 senators, but only a third of them are up for election every two years. Um, States like D.C. or states like D.C., not states like D.C. (laughs) Actually, we're Um, voting on that. We are voting on that. We are voting on D.C. statehood. But, you know, then you have places like D.C. where we don't have members of Congress, but we have delegates. We have city councils. So you can have a very, very long ballot. Oftentimes for offices, Mm -hmm. you're not even entirely sure what they are. Absolutely. I mean, so we don't have an average number, which is what uh, what our listener was asking for. But I decided to just sort of shoot a little bit at random. I did go to my home state of Iowa, but I found a sample ballot from Scott County. For this year, in this particular part of Scott County, there are 20 different choices that you're going to make on Election Day. Wow. And it ranges from president, senator, representative, et cetera, down to sheriff, auditor, soil Mm -hmm. and water conservation district people, (laughs) uh, you know, court of appeals justices, district court judges. So, I mean, you can really go for a while. And in some states, you're also going to have, you know ballot measures. So you want marijuana to be legal in your state. Do you, you know, how do you feel about this thing or that thing? All right. Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, Enjoy Winnipeg. Glad you have the Jets back. (laughs) All right. We have our next question. It's from Aaron in Davis, California. Uh, Aaron only spells his name with one A, so I almost pronounced that Key and Peele style. A-Ron? (laughs) A-Ron. It may be. We don't know. That's true. A-Ron or Or Aaron. Or Aaron. Anyway, Davis is a lovely place to live. Uh, Let's hear your question. Donald Trump keeps bringing up that the election is rigged, and he's correct, although not in the way he means it. The redistricting, especially after the 2010 election, is an appalling example of how the vote is rigged. It not only favors incumbents, disenfranchises minorities, it allows parties to play to their base, it also contributes to voter apathy. My question is, has there been any studies to look to see if the Democrats or Republicans are more benefited from redistricting? And what impact does redistricting have on the presidential race, or is it just the quote-unquote local races? Um, well, yeah. I have I have written and studied a lot about redistricting, particularly because I cover Congress and I cover the House. And this is always this is an issue, obviously, every 10 years. The 2010 redistricting had a disproportionate effect that benefited Republicans, because after the 2010 elections, Republicans took over more state legislatures and governorships. And in still the majority of states, redrawing the lines is governed by legislators. However, I think that redistricting has often become shorthand for all the ills of our political system. Mm -hmm. And it's just not that simple. It is absolutely a symptom of the polarization that we see. But it is not the only reason for it. And I say that because no matter who draws the lines, if the whole country was done by a nonpartisan commission, about two thirds of that 435 districts in the House would still still be safe partisan seats, Mm -hmm. that it's not this idea that all of these races could be competitive. And the thing that drives a lot of that is we have geographically self-sorted ourselves, that Democrats tend to be packed into urban centers and the suburbs, and Republicans are more spread out. In the 2012 election, and this has been frustrating for Democrats, they won more votes but they have a lot less seats in the House. So they got about a million more votes. House Democrats got about a million more votes than House Republicans, but House Republicans had about a 30-seat majority at the time. And is that because you have a lot of Democrats in urban areas, and so it's just a lot lot more densely packed? Yep. Did you guys see these stories that that popped up in the last couple of weeks that President Obama is going to focus, apparently, a lot of his political efforts once he leaves office on the issue of redistricting, on making sure people show up to vote in the midterms that select the state houses and Mm governors? 
governors who are in charge of this sort of thing. Yeah, he but, also brought that up in his final State of the Union address, that that was, that was an issue that they needed to face. And uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder is also going to be part of that effort, which is not dissimilar to what the Republican Party did ahead of the 2010 redistricting. So mm-hmm. Democrats are trying to basically model what Republicans did ahead of the 2020 redistricting. Right. And as a Democrat, of course, it's easy to have a particular interest in this because uh, in the midterms, Democrats tend to, you know, lose out on turnout to Republicans. Yep. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Aaron, let us know. Let us, <laughs> let know, us know which, which is one right. it is. Yeah. I'm with our own. I kind of really hope do. it's Aaron because that'd be awesome. <laughs> all right. Uh, up next is Anna Maria who asks, hey, all, thanks for all you do on the podcast. I want to ask about the Supreme Court vacancy. John McCain has hinted that any Supreme Court nominee Hillary Clinton might name if she were elected would be blocked by Senate Republicans if the GOP keeps control of the Senate and won't hold confirmation hearings, what legal or constitutional recourse is there to fill the vacancy? Well, in short, there there really isn't recourse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, actually, yesterday, just to uh, make sure I was understanding this, I called up Erwin Kemerinsky. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He is a big constitutional law expert. And I asked him about this and he said, you know, the Senate can wait however long they want. There's no way to force them to confirm somebody. However, there are things sort of working uh, in the favor of eventually getting a nominee confirmed. And that is... You don't want to set the precedent of, hey, we're not going to confirm any justices because when the Senate, you know, changes hands and, you know, there's a Republican in the White House and Democrats in the Senate, then Republican senators aren't going to want those Democrats to say, you did it to us, we'll do it to you. Sue, has there been any change on Senate Republicans' total disinterest in holding hearings or vote for Merrick Garland, even if Hillary Clinton wins in a couple of weeks? No, and it won't happen in the lame duck. I do think, though, that in the context that John McCain made these comments, it was into a local Philadelphia news station where he's campaigning for Republican Pat Toomey. So I think part of his comments were made three weeks out from an election year where people are trying. It was part of a broader argument Republicans are trying to make now that if Clinton's going to be president, they need to be as a check on her power. He did walk that statement back through a spokeswoman after he said it and said, no, of course, any judge would be given deliberate vetting. It's also not clear when McCain said, and this is where you, I kind of geek out about Senate procedure a little bit, is it's not unlikely that if Hillary Clinton gets to nominate judges, Senate Republicans are going to oppose it. What's unclear, and from McCain's comments, is if he meant that they would never even let it get a vote. And there's two very different things in the Senate, which is a filibuster and then letting a vote happen. So a lot of Republicans won't even vote for a guy like Merrick Garland if she renominates him, but they're not going to stop the process from happening. Now, if Hillary Clinton becomes president and Senate Republicans decide that they will not let any nomination go forward, it's more likely you would hear Senate Democrats begin to talk about going nuclear mm-hmm. on Supreme Court nominations. And what that would mean is that they would change the Senate rules in an incredibly controversial move to make it essentially impossible to filibuster Supreme Court nominees and approve them with 51 votes. Now, they kind of did that a few years ago with other federal judges, Exactly. Right? They did it with all nominations below the Supreme Court level yeah. because that was seen as a bridge too far. But if we were in a situation where Senate Republicans made the determination that not a single judge would move forward and that vacancy would sit there, I think we'd be having a very different conversation about that. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Well, thanks, Anna Maria, for that question. Our next one is also recorded. It comes from Casey. Hey, NPR. This is Casey calling in from 
Boston. Just got finished watching the debate here tonight, and all of this talk about Donald Trump saying that the election has been rigged and saying that he won't necessarily accept the results of an election got me wondering, does he actually have to concede if he loses, or is conceding more of a formality? Is it a legal thing? How does it sort of work? What are the actual rules? Uh, Love the show. Hope you're having a great time. We're almost out of it. (laughs) Thanks, Casey. Yeah. Is it a formality? Uh, Yeah, but it's a very important formality, one might say. I mean, because, you know, think about it. Every four years, we don't wait for the Green Party and the Libertarian Party to concede. We only just sort of look to the major parties. The question that people seem to be wondering about here is not so much whether just Donald Trump would say, yes, Hillary Clinton has won, should she win? But rather, you know, whether the people who follow him, who are very enthusiastic about him, you know, whether they would accept the results of the election. There's nothing that requires a losing candidate to give a concession speech. It is there's no law. It's not forced upon them. But it is a bedrock of the history of this country that the losing presidential candidate would do so. And those are moments, I would say, if you look at particularly um, Mitt Romney and John McCain and recent Al Gore, Mm -hmm. uh, are moments of generally in recent years, unity kindness, concession for the greater good of the country. I mean, these do not tend to be partisan speeches. They tend to be like very gracious and grateful and healing speeches. And yeah. I think that that's not necessarily the style of Donald Trump. <laughs> so that if if and when he does have to give a concession speech, there is a lot of questions of, you know, what would that even look like? Mm-hmm. But I think that was that was a question even before this talk about maybe not accepting the results. So even if that's brinksmanship, even if that's bluffing, It seems to me hard to have that gracious speech when you've spent months saying that your opponent should be in jail. Although he did have a moment, if you remember, uh, in the primaries after he lost Iowa. Yeah. A lot of people thought he was going to come out and be uh, much more aggressive. And he had and he was fairly conciliatory Mm -hmm. towards Ted Cruz, who won Iowa. Yeah. All right. Uh, Our last question comes from Leah in Seattle. She writes, hey, NPR politics, as a high school teacher, now stay at home mom, you guys help me stay connected to the world outside of Sesame Street. And I love you for it. So thank you. Thank you, Leah. And I'm sorry there are a few more Muppets on our podcast than there are on Sesame Street. Uh, my question. I don't get it. We don't, we, none of us are Muppets. Oh, I said I thought you said, I'm sorry, there are more Muppets. I'm sorry, um, there are not more. I wish. Okay. Puppets. You're the puppet. <laughs> You're a puppet. No, you are. <laughs> my question is about writing votes. Some of my conservative family members don't like Donald Trump, so they're planning on writing in Paul Ryan. I understand that this helps them solve the moral dilemma of who their vote will go to, but will it actually do anything come Election Day? Will media outlets report on the number of write-in votes for certain people, and will this cause any kind of reflection or action on the part of a political party like the GOP? Will someone like Paul Ryan be more likely to run next time if he learns that he got a significant number of write-in votes, or is writing a vote in just helping that particular voter sleep at night? Thanks so much, Leah. I think that's an interesting question, because when you saw all that group of Republican lawmakers say that they weren't going to vote for Donald Trump or that he should withdraw, a lot of them said, and I'm just going to write in Mm -hmm. Mike Pence. Uh, (laughs) It'll be curious to, to see what it looks like on Election Day, because typically... Write-in votes, you get a general sense of there were X amount of write-in votes, but it takes a while for that to process and see, you know, 10 were for Mickey Mouse, 16 right. were for this person. Although it really is more about making the voter feel better about and sleeping at night. Because oh, yeah. a lot of states also have rules that 
even if you write someone in, that if you're a write-in candidate, you still have to register with the Secretary of State as a write-in candidate. Yeah. So yeah. just writing in Paul Ryan in many states where he's not a write-in candidate, that ballot won't even be counted. Right now, the numbers I found in 34 states, so it's most of them, are like what Sue was saying. You have to file as a write-in candidate. Actually, I saw a headline today from the Charlotte News Observer that said, North Carolina write-in votes won't count unless they're for Jill Stein because Jill Stein has registered as mm-hmm. a write-in candidate. So if you vote for... If you write her in in North Carolina, then yeah, it will count. Nine states prohibit write-in voting. And the remainder, you can write in whoever you want. You can write in Danielle. Yeah. Well, interestingly, some states, some jurisdictions will release who all the write-in votes were for. I found a list from New York in 2012. There were two write-ins for Vladimir Putin. One was spelled right. One was spelled horrendously (laughs) wrong. (laughs) There was one for my cat, Ginger. And uh, there was one for we can run things better ourselves. It's just it's all over the place. And it depends on your state. And that was clearly voters who just wanted to make themselves feel better. (laughs) Probably probably the most successful write-in candidacy was Lisa Murkowski's, right? Yeah. yeah. Lisa Murkowski is a Republican senator from Alaska who in 2010 lost her primary and in response mounted a write-in campaign for November. And particularly because the Murkowskis were so well-known in Alaska, kind of like the Kennedys in Massachusetts, she mounted a successful writing campaign and came back to win. Only two senators in the history of this country have been able to do that. The other one was Strom Thurmond. Oh. Yeah. And she won by a wide margin, so it was irrelevant. But I remember wondering at the time if enough people had spelled the name wrong. Would would uh, would have yeah. election officials, if you spelled it with a Y or something, would election officials have been like, eh, I don't know. And that that's part of uh, and part of the rules about writing ballots, too, that even I wonder even about Jill Stein. Yeah. As, oh, there's yeah. a lot of different ways to spell Stein, right? Yeah. So, so if so, it's spelled wrong, that could be a contested ballot, although I don't think Jill Stein is going to be in contention for the presidency, so it probably won't matter. Interesting. All right. I well, guess Mike Krzyzewski can't run for, can't run as a writing <laughs> candidate. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to write us with a question, you have to get our email address correctly, and it's nprpolitics at npr.org. So that's all the mail for this week. Send us those questions. We read all of them, and even if we can't reply, it gives us a good sense of what we should talk about on the show when we hear what you want to know about. So thanks for that. And a reminder that starting today, between now and the election, we are going to do a new episode every single weekday. So that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Get ready to hear a lot more of us. Um, Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 